everyone. I hope you had a great week. This is my week of recovery. <laughs> I'm almost back to 100%. But, so if I struggle a little bit in my enthusiasm, it's not because I don't like the material. It's uh, because it's been a bit uh, getting over a cold kind of a thing. So I appreciate your patience. Um, I think actually I was supposed to be sick last week because Pastor Neil did a fantastic job with the sermon. And uh, I think that he, uh, he, he knocked the ball out of the ballpark. He, he did a fantastic job communicating truth to us. So my wife and I were able to listen from home and enjoy that, uh, worshiping with you at the same time. Let me ask you, how many of you like roller coasters? What, three people? Okay, so well, I grew up with a mother who loved roller coasters. Uh, in fact, she, she was so addicted to roller coasters, she tried to go to every one she could find. Uh, San Francisco used to have a roller coaster, an old wooden roller coaster that went out over the water in the bay, and, and uh, she heard that it was going to be torn down because it was so old and rickety, so she had to get there <laughs> before, before it was torn down. And her dad said, I don't want to ever hear of you going on another roller coaster. So she never told him. <laughs> she just... <laughs> going. So I, I grew up with an adventurous mom, and she, she was a bit of a, I don't say thrill seeker, but she just loved, loved that kind of feeling, and maybe that's how I got my, I like going fast. I like, I don't know, I shouldn't be called the faster pastor, but I think I am. Uh, loved driving on the Autobahn in Germany, loved the motorcycles and uh, even fast horses, that kind of a thing. So I like going on the roller coasters. West Edmonton Mall, I think that one is not too bad. I've been on Six Flags and lots of different things over the years, but I could never get my kids to go with me. They refused. In fact, my wife wouldn't go with me either. I had to go on the roller coasters all by myself. I mean, I couldn't bribe them and cajole them and embarrass them or shame them. They just wouldn't. They refused. No, I'm not going on that. It's too scary. But then we planned a trip to Disneyland, and they've got this magic mountain roller coaster. It used to be called the Matterhorn years and years ago. Uh, when I was little, but now this magic mountain, it's an indoor one. And so I started working on them, uh, how fun it was, how exciting it is, and, and you're just going to love this ride, and I don't know, Dad. I said, no, it's going to be great, you know, this is going to be the fun, funnest thing ever. I'm not sure, sure, Dad. And so finally they acquiesced, and they went in line with me to the magic mountain, and they were watching this little, these, these carts fill up with people and zip off into the darkness, into this tunnel area. And uh, have, have you been on Magic Mountain, any of you? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a blast. But So I've, I, I put the, my two kids um, in the seat just in front of me, and I sat behind them, and I kind of held onto their shoulders. And they were just, mm. Finally, they went through, and we had this. I said, you have to scream. You have to scream as loud as you can at the scary parts, because that's the fun fun way to do the roller coasters. And so they screamed, and I screamed behind them. And when they got off, they said, let's do it again. And they got back in line, and went around. It's, it's like, finally, in all these years, my kids were going to ride with me. You know, and uh, it, was, it was fun to be able to encourage them and give them the, the courage to do that. And uh, some people are really good at encouraging others. They know how to inspire others to greatness, to work harder than they ever have before, to reach higher, to go farther. And I see coaches and I see trainers, people like that, that, that take the raw talent of an athlete and they, they help them to become better than they ever would uh, on their own. Um, they inspire teams and, uh, and individuals to bring out the best potential just at the right time. 
In, in the Old Testament, we're introduced to a man named Joshua. Uh, some people don't think he had any parents because he was the son of none. Uh, it's N-U-N. Uh, but actually, his dad wasn't a nun. It was just his name. <clears throat> so Joshua, though, was kind of the right-hand man to Moses in the Old Testament. And Moses was the one tasked with taking the, 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 uh, God's people who had become slaves in Egypt through a, a number of trials and really interesting stages all the way through uh, the wilderness of Sinai into the promised land. Well, uh, at some point, God says to Moses, you need to hand things off to Joshua. You need to kind of give him the reins because he's the one who will actually take my people into the promised land. It's not going to be you, Moses. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 28. God says to Moses, charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go over to the head, uh, at the head of, of this people. He will put them in possession of the land and that you will see. And so um, Moses gives Joshua a charge saying, you're, you're going to be the guy. I'm going to have to fade away. Uh, the problem was um, Moses. I mean, marvelous, magnificent, mighty Moses. Uh, there's no one like Moses. And Joshua's got to step into his place. In fact, in, Joshua, in Deuteronomy 34, this is the, this is the epithet of, of Moses. This is kind of a summary of what the, the Bible says about him. And there has not arisen a prophet since in, in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his servants, to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. How are you going to follow a guy like that? I mean, no one ever before or since is like Moses, and now you've got to step into his place? Like, seriously? Who wants to do that? Deuteronomy 34, 7, it says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed, his vigor unabated, and the people of Israel wept for him in the plains of Moab for 30 days, a whole month of weeping for Moses' death. And then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit and wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. As did the, uh, he, they, they, they followed him exactly like they followed Moses. Today I want to talk about this idea of uh, uh, an uncommon family that we have as the people of God. And we have this privilege of encouraging one another. Joshua would not have been successful had Moses not encouraged him, as God had not stepped in and, and given him the reins. Many great people have accomplished what they did because they had the support and encouragement of their family and friends or colleagues. I mean, a lot of people would have thrown in the towel and quit long before they did if they hadn't had people backing them up and, and walking with them and, and, and giving them encouragement along the way. Not everyone has someone to cheer them on. There are a lot of people who are alone in this world that just make their own way and do the best they can. And that's the beauty of a church family, you know, to pray for you, to stand by you, to, to uh, send you notes of encouragement. Uh, this past week, uh, there were some kind people that dropped notes off for the staff uh, to encourage us, saying, thanks, we're, you're doing a great job, we're praying for you. That does wonders. 
for your staff. It, it, it tells us that, that we're not just doing this for fun. It's, we're doing this because people appreciate what's happening. God is blessing. It says in Joshua 5.13 that um, Joshua was about to head into the most challenging moment of his career. Now, this was going to make or break Joshua. This was a test of his ability as a leader and his character as God's servant. Jericho, the first city in the promised land that they were going to have to defeat. Jericho was indomitable. It was impenetrable. It actually had a series of double walls. It was on a big hill surrounded by a perimeter wall 12 to 15 feet high, and then there's a bit of a rise, and then there's a second wall on the top that was another 10 or 12 feet high. They were six feet thick, and there were some ramps that went up the outside and into gates that, that people could access this. Nobody, nobody could penetrate Jericho. This was uh, the most defensible place. In fact, this, Jericho was probably one of the oldest cities in the world. And it was one of the first walled cities as well. So Jericho laughed when the Israelites came. It was like, whatever. In fact, this was harvest time. So they had already brought in all the stores, uh, the wheat, the harvest. They had, they had an underground well system. So they could actually last for years inside Jericho if they were surrounded by an enemy. The enemy would eventually just give up and go home because he'd run out of supplies and Jericho would be laughing. And when they, found, when they do the archaeological digs in Jericho to this day, they find store rooms full of wheat and grain. They were ready for the siege, but they didn't count on God. They, didn't, they, didn't, they never found someone like, like Israel's God before. So just as Joshua was about to... Uh, Siege the city of Jericho. <clears throat> if you can imagine, looking out over the plain, there's the, the city of Jericho with the double walls and uh, 45 feet high off the plain. There's the top end of Jericho, another series of walls. He looks out over this walled city going, oh God, we've never encountered anything like this before. What does God do? Chapter 5, verse 13, Joshua's by Jericho lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, a man was standing before him, and his sword was drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him, brave as he is, and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the man says, no, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord, and I have come to you. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped, and he said, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I've always wondered why you have to take your shoes off in the presence of God. Well, it's a custom um, a show of respect and honor, um, not to defame, deface the, the holy ground. Who else had to take the shoes off their feet because they were standing on holy ground? Yeah, Moses. It's the only other one that we have a record of. It's curious, isn't it? The same one that Joshua was following, God had the same kind of, the very first interaction, he had to take his shoes off too. And then, who else was given an irrational task in the face of overwhelming odds while leading God's people? Uh, Moses, and Hezekiah, and Gideon, and Samson. There's lots of people that God said, you got to stand up. I know it looks overwhelming, but you know what? I'm with you. Who else was forced to depend completely on God's power to defeat their enemies? Well, lots of people, actually. 
But God came through. It's, it's fascinating to me that in this, this day and the, the, uh, the idea of encouragement, that God actually demonstrates what he's talking about. It says in Joshua 6, 27, the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. So Joshua obeyed God's instructions to march around Jericho seven times. And on the last time they blew the trumpets and yelled, the walls came down. Many people believe God just sent the earthquake at the right moment. All the walls came down. They marched in and defeated, destroyed the town. And you know what? The same fear that all the nations had of Moses when he was coming through because of what he did to Egypt, the same fear all the other tribes in the promised land had of Joshua now because his fame of what he did to Jericho. They were terrified because of what God was doing through this new leader. You know, people naturally get discouraged and distracted and disoriented and depressed and dislodged from their foundation, and they need courage to get back on track. So the word encouragement means to actually give courage to somebody. It's not just patting them on the back and say, you'll do okay, hang in there. It's to give courage, not just to hype them up and pump them up, but you know what? It's to say, you, you were meant for this. You were born for this. This is, this is your destiny. Grab hold of it. Stand up. Throw your shoulders back. Hold your head high. You're, you're going to be great. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift his fellow up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he does not have another one to help him. So God actually himself comes to Joshua, and this is what I'm talking about. He demonstrates in Joshua one night. He says, don't be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. They will not fail you or forsake you. God said that. (coughs) Can you imagine God coming to you the day before your final exam, make or break your, 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 your class, your whole course, your whole career is on the line, and he comes, knocks at your door, opens it up, and says, you know what, I'm with you give you everything you need to know. You're going to be great. You're going to ace this exam. No worries. In fact, I'll meet you after. We'll go for coffee. Basically what God's saying to Joshua, you have no worries. I'm with you. But I want to talk about another person in the New Testament that Paul depended on to encourage the churches, particularly in Ephesus and Colossae and Laodicea. He was one of Paul's best emissaries of hope. And when one of the churches became discouraged, he sent this fellow to, to encourage the church, to, uh, to say, hang in there. Hey, it's going to be okay. God's got this. You're going to be fine. Ephesians, uh, and, well, to say Paul uh, actually gave this, this fellow uh, 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 the letters of, uh, to Ephesus and to Colossae and to Laodicea to hand deliver them and to give a report on how everything was going. Paul was in Rome. Lots of people were there in Rome. And I like this culture of encouragement that Paul developed among the churches. He says in Ephesians 6, 21, so that you may also know how I am doing, he says, I'm going to send Tychicus and the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, and he will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus was from Asia. He was a messenger of encouragement to the believers who were discouraged. They were were trying to survive under oppression, under discouragement, under um, attack in many cases. And then he says, um, 
In Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, I'm going to tell you all about my activities, but Tychicus is going to come and tell you again, very similar to what he said in Ephesians 6. He's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant of the Lord. And I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, I'm sending Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. And they will tell you everything that has taken place. Onesimus was a former slave of Philemon. And Onesimus went to Rome. He, 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 he uh, left in the middle of the night. He was a runaway slave. Paul got a hold of him in, in Rome and knew, knew of him because he, he knew Philemon. Led him to Christ and then basically sent him back to Philemon with the letter. And you have the letter in your Bible called Philemon. And he helped Onesimus become <clears throat> free. Not only become free from being a slave, but became a brother and also an encourager and probably like a pastor to many of the churches. That's what Paul does with people. He, he takes them from where they are and what, the station in life and helps encourage them to be what they can be with the Lord's help. And then he goes on, verse 10. I'm going to send Aristarchus, also my fellow prisoner, greets you. Uh, he was from uh, Thessalonica in Macedonia. He was always with Paul as well. Paul had a, a cadre, a bubble of encouragers around him all the time. Verse 10, Aristarchus is, is, greets you, and, uh, and also Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions if he comes to you. So he's got, uh, he's got Tychicus and Onesimus he's sending, and he also says, hey, by the way, Aristarchus and Mark, say hi. Uh, then he says, uh, Jesus, who's called Justice, um, he's, also, he's, he's, he's also saying he's a comfort to me, but uh, he's saying greetings to you as well. And then he talks about Epaphras, who was one of you, uh, a Colossian, a servant of Christ. He greets you. He says he's struggling always on your behalf. This is a list of people that Paul is surrounded by. Many people believe that Epaphras was actually their former pastor who had come to Rome to help encourage Paul. Uh, Paul is in prison. Uh, I don't know if he had actual chains on him, but he, they'd all come to support Paul. Paul was such an encourager to so many other people. Now there's other people just surrounded him to encourage him as well. And then, then he says, uh, Luke, we also have a gospel of Luke. He says, uh, he greets you, as does Demas, and give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter is read to you, um, I'll read it, uh, also read the letter that I gave to the Laodiceans and see that, uh, make, just share the letters around. And so that's what we have in our scriptures, the, the letters of Paul. They were shared around to all the, the early churches and now we get to read them as well. And then there's something interesting in verse 17. He says, say to Archippus, uh, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now, Archippus had, uh, was taking a break from ministry. He wasn't actually doing what God had called him to do. He was watching other people in the kingdom do the, do the work. He was, uh, I don't know what happened to, Ar uh, to Archippus. Maybe he got discouraged. Maybe he got harassed. Maybe there's a physical thing. We don't really know. But Paul says, give Archippus a little boost. Give him some encouragement to get back on track. Get him back in the game. To be doing what God has called him to do. See, Encouragement takes on many faces. It can range from uh, crying with someone who's hurting to admonishing people to get off their lazy backsides and get to work. Uh, encouragement is not just, a, you know, you can do this. It's, uh, it's walking with someone from 
being in a, in a difficult position to helping them get back on a solid place. So in 1 Thessalonians, another letter of Paul, chapter 5, verse 12, uh, he has some very interesting uh, instructions for us. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. So Sundays today, I'm admonishing you. Is that okay? Mostly trying to encourage you, but sometimes we need a little admonishment, and we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> and he says, uh, esteem them highly in love because of their work, and be at peace among yourselves. In verse 14, and we urge you, brothers, to do four things. First of all, admonish the idol, and this is what I mean. Give them a bit of a boost to say, you know what, we're working in this together, and you're not pulling your fair share. You're not really in the game. You're not helping us out. We've all got stuff to do, right? God adds to the body as he sees fit so that we can all do the, the ministries that he's put uh, in, in us to accomplish. Admonish the idle. Second, encourage the faint-hearted, those that are struggling, those that are weak in the faith, that um, not sure, they're kind of on the fence. Encourage the faint-hearted and then help the weak and be patient with them all. And then he says, see that no one repays evil uh, for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And then the, uh, Romans uh, 15, 14, another verse that's similar. He says, myself, I'm persuaded of you, my brothers, that you also are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. What I'm saying is admonishing one another is, is, is coming up to someone and say, hey, I, I haven't seen you a lot lately. Or calling up someone, you realize there's about 200 people in the congregation that we haven't seen for about a year and a half, two years now. We're missing them. They're, they're MIA, missing in action. And I was just thinking to myself, what if they got a phone call from some of us to say, hey, we really missed you. How are you doing? How can we be praying for you? 200 people that, I, that may be struggling. Maybe they're the ones who are um, faint-hearted or weak or at least they're idle because we don't see or hear much from them. So if you're at home, thank you for coming in to our service. But, you know, there's work to do. We're working together for God's kingdom. We're, we're trying to reach our community. We're trying to make a difference in our city. And, and we miss you if you haven't been coming. We'd love to see you again. You see, no one is above needing to be admonished. For me, I, I, the, the elders are free to admonish me. My wife admonishes me all the time. Uh, the elders need admonishing. The Sunday school teachers, the youth workers, the tech people. We admonish one another to encourage one another to, to, to go farther, to go higher, to to serve to the best of our abilities. That's what being a part of a family is, to encourage and inspire and spur one another on to love and good works. 1 Timothy 5, Paul is talking to a young Timothy who's pastoring a church, and he says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. We're not here to rebuke. We're here to build up, not to tear down. And the younger men, encourage them as brothers and the older women. Encourage them as mothers and the younger women. Encourage them as sisters. That's what he wants us to do in the church family. And this is one of those um, admonishments in 2 Thessalonians 3.11. He says, for we hear that some among you are walking in idleness. They're not busy at work, but they're busy bodies. In other words, they're just going around gossiping and finding out what everyone else is doing. He says, such persons we... I like these words, we command and we encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. He's, he's saying, you know, it's, sometimes you can call people out, 
You say, you can do better, you know. What happened? Like, how, do we, how do we help you to get to a place you need to be? So encouragement does not normally come to most people, that you have to cultivate encouragement. But I do know every day you're going to meet someone that craves encouragement. They're looking for someone to, to help them out, to, get, to give them a good word, to, to, to tell them, give them some hope. It's a very discouraging time right now. And we have a, huh, a responsibility, an, a, an opportunity to be the kind of people God wants to have representing him that lift other people up. They want some, people want some to believe in them, to give them courage. We don't know what they're facing, what they're going through, but a few words of encouragement can really help. I, I admit that um, when I go to a restaurant, usually I want to just talk with the person I'm sitting there with, and I've got a purpose in mind, a direction I'm going with this person, and then the waitress sometimes just bothers me like two or three times. I'm like, okay, you know, we're good, we're good, thanks. And I go so focused, and then... Um, then my, job, my, my son got a job at um, H&M, a clothing store. And he started coming home and telling me stories of how customers treated him and the kinds of antics customers, customers would go to, you know, steal clothing and, and, and to rip things off, whatever. And some are extremely rude and nasty to him. And, and he says, yeah, my friend just got a job as a table server in a restaurant. And he, you can't believe how horrible people are to them. And I started to think, wait a minute, I, I, every time I went to a store now, I'm thinking about that person, you know, could be my son. <laughs> that person could, could be my daughter serving, and how do I want to treat them? And so now I, I you know, I started engaging people with uh, conversation and, and asking how their day was, and they kind of like, what? oh, I'm, I'm good, thanks for asking, <laughs> because nobody really usually cares about those, but those are people. Those are those often poor students just struggling to get by, or single moms trying to make ends meet, and Maybe they're going through cancer treatments. Maybe their husband just left them or, or you don't know what's going on in their life. And for us to walk up and smile at them, to ask how your day is going, that's so unusual. It's not normal. I have a friend of mine. He's uh, turning 80 years old soon. And his job, he says, my job is to make three people laugh every day. I, just, I can't go to sleep at night if I haven't made three people laugh during the day. And I tell you, a lot of us is a trial because not all of his jokes are that funny. Uh, but, but he tries. I mean, he's trying to help people get through the day. They've got dark valleys they're going through. And, and can we not be the ones who give courage to others? So here's my admonishing part of the message, <clears throat> because it's important. I've heard over the past, past five or six months, I do, I do listen carefully in foyer conversations and hallway conversations. And I don't know how you design the offices, but I can sit at my desk in my office and hear everything that's going on in the hallway and in the foyer, and in the secretary's office, uh, my administrative assistants. And I know the conversations. And, I, and I'll just, just say that here's some things that encouragement is not. Encouragement is not sarcasm. Sarcasm hurts people by making them look silly. Encouragement uh, is not criticism. You know, criticism may illuminate someone's shortcomings, but it's not encouragement. It's a terrible motivator. Pointing out someone's fault is, is sometimes necessary. Uh, they may not realize uh, how they're coming off to people. Um, but uh, if you're going to give someone some criticism, make sure you walk with that person to help them overcome those faults. Don't just be pointing out people's faults. 
helps them to become better where they need to be. Always try to back up your comments with action. Another thing, pointing out the obvious is not encouragement either. Uh, you know, by definition, uh, pointing out the obvious is pointing out what everyone already knows. So you're just kind of rubbing things in, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a downer. And the, last, the last one that I've heard and I've dealt with uh, from time to time is people that come to me and want to tell me the truth in love. Have you ever heard that from anyone? I just need to tell you the truth in love. I'm going, no, you just got a critical spirit. No, you're just an opinionated person. Most of the time, we don't know what that means. Uh, telling the truth in love is, is, it starts with love first. How do we help this per- person? How do we encourage this person? But most of the time, it's just being opinionated. So if you can leave, uh, the person that used to tell me the truth in love all the time left me so discouraged. Every time they came into my office to tell me the truth in love, I was so discouraged. I, thought, I think I'll just quit. You know? That's not helping. It's not encouraging. It's not building people up. My dad used to say there's always two ways of saying things. For example, he used to say, you could say your face could stop a clock. Or you could say, time stands still when I look at you. Both say the same thing, but one is hurtful. So three points. True encouragement produces change. If you truly encourage someone It's going to be different from that point on in their life. Secondly, true encouragement powerfully motivates people to action. You're giving them the strength to proceed, to move on, to step out, to go forward in their life. And third, true encouragement creates courage in others. It actually helps them physically. Intentional and sincere encouragement can save a marriage. It can prevent suicide. It can avert addictions. It can retain employees. It can change lives. Let me read that again. True encouragement can save a marriage, can prevent suicide, can avert addictions, retain employees, and change lives. Proverbs 25.11 says, The right word at the right time is like precious gold set in silver. Did you know that um, the reason... J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings was because one of his best friends, C.S. Lewis, urged him to write this. C.S. Lewis encouraged Tolkien, you got to write this. This is a great idea. It's going to be a fantastic story. He says, are you sure? Yeah, I know. He's going to be, you got to do this. I'll be embarrassed if you don't do this. He gave him the courage to write, to step out, to, do, to, to write a, a trilogy that um, millions of people have enjoyed. So let me just leave you with this, this thought. Um, Andrew Newberg, Dr. Andrew Newberg and Mark Waldham wrote an interesting article called The Most Dangerous Word in the World. You can look it up. In it they state, if I were to put you into an MRI scanner and flash the word no for less than one second, you'd see a sudden release of dozens of stress-producing hormones and neurotransmitters These chemicals immediately interrupt the normal functioning of your brain, impairing logic, reason, language, processing, and communication. Just by saying the word no, all of a sudden your brain goes into a frenzy and into like a panic attack. However, positive words like peace and love can alter the expression of genes, strengthening areas of your frontal lobes and promoting the brain's cognitive function. They propel the motivational centers of the brain into action. In other words, 
Our words have an emotional and psychological and physical impact on other people. You can physically change another person's brain functioning by giving them positive and encouraging words. You can make a, a difference like you, you don't even understand by encouraging others. We can be carriers of courage. We can impart courage to other people, walking with them, spurring one another on. So what do we do? I got four things to end with. One, show it. Show, show your courage. Uh, sorry, encouragement. And how do you do that? Just smile. I remember, you know, I, sometimes, you know, the weight of the world's on my shoulders, and I, I can walk through a uh, hallway and, and really just thinking about all the stuff that has to happen. And I used to have a colleague that would say, Tom, smile. Like, what? What do you mean, smile? Just, just smile. It makes such a difference. Can you imagine when you go up to the store clerk and just smile? They're going to, what's he doing? What's wrong with that? Nobody smiles. Of course, you can't see with a mask on. Secondly, speak encouragement. Encourage the overlooked and the forgotten, the unseen people who feel abandoned, to those who give up too soon or need encouragement to step out. Speak courage. Smile, show it, speak it, and then write it, right? Write encouragement. Send a note, send a text, a card. It reminds people how important and how loved they are. Empower the powerless. Encourage those who are second-guessing themselves all the time. And fourthly, live. Live encouragement. Freely compliment people for what they do, how they look, what they've accomplished, what a great friend they are, how important their contribution is to the team. Be a carrier of courage. I challenge you today as you leave this place you know, what are the first things that you're going to say to your wife or husband or your kids? Hurry up, let's get in the car. <clears throat> or, did I tell you how lovely you look today? Or, hey, how, what can I do for you today? How can I help you today? What, you know, just, just monitor yourself. Was there sarcasm? Was there criticism? Was there stating the obvious? Or was there encouragement? Did you help someone get to a place they never thought they could get alone? Let's pray. Father God, it's a grand time to be carriers of courage because so many people are hurting and frustrated and businesses are on the edge of whether they survive or not and lots of people are frustrated with life, but Father, you've given us a challenge and an opportunity to be a blessing to others around, to be an encourager, to walk with others, to change their life by the encouragement we can give to them. And I pray, Father, that we would seek out those who are struggling, the weak, the discouraged, and we would learn how to effectively build them up so that we all would be built up as a body. We'd be unified in heart and mind and purpose. And that when people walk into these doors, they know that they are quickly accepted and loved and it can be, be a place of encouragement to them. Father, thank you for this church, for where you've placed it, for the task you've given it, and the people that you brought to it. I pray your blessing upon us as we obey you into areas that we never thought we would ever go. But because you led us, we went. 